Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 231. Today is the 23rd of April 2017, and this interview is with Dave Parkinson, the Geordie Geek, who spent over 25 years at Nissan, having been head of social and digital for them. He recently created his own startup consulting partnership, Brave and Heart, that promises to be the antidote to juggernaut consultancies. In this interview, we look at some of the sterling key lessons learned of driving the social media and digital agendas at the Nissan Group. We also discuss the role of agencies, the way managers must lead, and how to add some brave and heart into your brand. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue podcast, where we discuss brand marketing with a focus on all things digital. I am Minter Dial, your host and author of The Mindset, that's M-Y-N-D-S-E-T dot com, where branding gets personal. You'll find the show notes to the blog for the upcoming interview. Let's cut to the quick. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the Minter Dialogue. Today we are in lovely London and my guest is someone who uh, I have met in and out over the last few years. Um, and who, with whom I was at South by Southwest, but we didn't even see each other in Austin, Texas. So, Dave Parkinson, tell us who you are and what is your mindset? Uh, yeah, hi, Minza. Um, so, my name is David Parkinson. I'm 46. I am co-founder of Brave and Heart, a new consultancy. I worked for Nissan for quite some years, 25 years, something like that. Maybe 26, I can't remember now. Didn't time go fast? Um, and my mindset. So, I'm a... Uh, I'm a practical northern guy, as you can tell by my dulcet tones, um, but I also like to think my mindset as a continual learner. One of the things I've done many, many times in the past is reinvent myself in many different ways, uh, and I do that through learning, be that learning how to podcast, how to make films, how to screenwrite, how to start a company. Um, I see myself as a continual learner, so I would say my mindset is always about an insatiable thirst for doing something new. That's brilliant. So, um, so that I say you you are a self-described Geordie uh, geek. Mm. Um, so, your past, Dave, you had twenty six years at Nissan, or Nissan, as we say over here, and um, you you came at it from a very peculiar angle, at least you know, well, a specific angle. So tell us a little bit about your path about Nissan and and how you ended up being head of uh, digital for uh, MIA or AMI, as you say. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's an, it is a really interesting story. I'll try and keep it really brief. Uh, yes, I worked for Nissan for 26 years. I was actually in the British Army for five years. I was a mechanic, uh, what they used to call a, a VMB, which is a mechanic for B-type vehicles, so Land Rovers, um, but generally anything with two wheels or an engine. Uh, I was... I was uh, you know, told to fix, which is basically what I did for about five years, and then 16 to 21. Left the army and joined Nissan on the production line, and then basically through lots and lots of sideways, slight upward moves, bit of relearning, go to university here, bit of college, uh, eventually managed to move um, around Nissan a fair amount, off the shop floor, into the office environment, then into IT, where I spent 10 years, you know, basically learning the nuts and bolts of how IT actually works. Uh, aligned with my passion, I was a computer geek and had been since I had a Commodore 64 when I was a child. Hmm. So a uh, long-time computer geek, and if you look at my Twitter account, my, my header image is a Commodore 64. It's still my, my favoured machine. Um, 
and you know, eventually ended up doing 10 years in IT. And then from that experience in IT, I spent quite a lot of time working alongside the business. So uh, very specifically inside marketing. So I did all of the marketing IT systems. I was their key business analyst, their key IT guy. And through that, I learned a lot about marketing and the IT aspects of marketing. And really that helped propel me into social media per se. Um, because when the opportunity arose for a, a role in there, knowing the business, knowing IT, knowing the background and, and with a learner capability, I was able to, in that time, six years ago, we're all beginners or um, as I like to call it, um, we, were, we were all enthusiastic amateurs in social media then, um, picked up a few books, uh, learned what to do, learned what it all meant and effectively, you know, trial and error as we went on. Uh, did that for four or five years within Nissan Europe uh, and then moved into digital for Africa, Middle East, India, head of digital. So that was basically covering social and, um, you know, web platforms. But, uh, you know, I also dabbled as much as I could in CRM, customer services, anything which was digital, I put my finger in because I think cross-functionally you have to. Well, at some point, digital is everything too. Yeah, exactly. At some point, you know, and it's very popular to say that nowadays, at some point there is no digital. Um, because digital is everything and therefore it's basically like the air that we breathe. So whereas it's quite popular to say digital does not exist or there is no digital or um, as Adam and Eve put it, we are now all interactive, um, there is some elements of truth in that. You know. All right, so Dave, I want to talk about your experience going into the social media side of Nissan. So you're coming at it from a, a programming side, an IT side. Tell us about what benefit it is to come from an IT side into social. Because, I mean, let's say, you know, you have these 20-year-old yippie-yappers who come out because they're Instagrammers, YouTubers, they love Facebook, and they, and they come at it from an intuitive side. With your coding, programming side, what, what concretely did that bring to you differently from the others? Well, I think there was, there was two aspects to it. I mean, the first one was with my sort of technical understanding uh, and this was this was summarized quite nicely by an article I did in um, for Homes magazine, uh, the Homes Report. And effectively, you know, their comment was, you know, Dave is um, an expert in social media, if such a thing exists, um, who is one of the few people in social media to have built blue chip platforms. And I think the the ability to understand how the you know the architecture behind social works is invaluable because it, it really it helps you understand you know, what makes things tick what makes things break what makes things work better uh, and how to move it forward behind all of that though i think are, are people and i think you know when we look at the the difference between the youtubers nowadays and these guys you said that do it more intuitively you know they do it because they they understand themselves and their audience and I think that is a, a large aspect of understanding social media. So I think the technical piece is great. And if you can do that, that's a marvelous. But if you, can, if you can apply that to an understanding of your audience and the people around you and, and blend the two things together, I think that's the, the sort of secret sauce. And I think that's what I try to bring to it because um, while as I understand the technical background, um, I understand people just as well. And I think you know, people, we're not going to say people are machines, but, you know, effectively, if you look at people and understand how, how they work and how your audiences work, and I always try and look at the customer and what the customer is thinking, be that customer an actual customer or a potential customer or just someone's interested in what you've got to say. And, you know, effectively, I, I guess the people listening to this podcast are your customers. Mm-hmm. But, you know, understanding your audience is almost as vital as understanding the technicalities behind how to put it all together. Mm-hmm. Well, as Mark Schaefer, you say, your audience is your customer. Um, 
In business, the majority of the people that I ever worked for have no idea what HTML, JavaScript <laughs> is. And when they would brief an agency, so to do some website or other, they would inevitably be incensed by the time it takes, the bugs that happen, the cost. Did you find it was also, were you able to broker that gap in Nissan or was that something you also experienced? No, that, I mean, that's exactly what I was able to do. I think I've been in many, many agency meetings where, um, you know, we're going to build a microsite, which I hate, by the way, right. but we're going to build a microsite and it's going to take us X number of weeks and cost X number of thousands of dollars. And I would go, you know, I don't think so, guys, because I've built microsites and I know how long it takes and I know what the platform and architecture is. And I know how much it's going to cost and that's not quite right. So, uh, you know, I was both able to broker it and I think very quickly, you know, not, not agencies, but I mean, I don't like to look at people as agencies per se, but the partners we worked with and my, you know, my friends in, in the partner businesses very quickly got to understand that they couldn't pull the wool over my eyes from a technical point of view because I'd, I'd been there and done it and got the t-shirt and I think that actually in the longer run made for a much better relationship because they understood that I knew what they were doing and therefore they understood that when they were you know when we were working on on ideas together we would do that as a better partnership rather than the dumb client so yeah, to speak right. you know so we're going to get into digital a little bit afterwards I think but um to what extent do you think if you were an executive in a company, do you think it's necessary to actually have a coding element? I mean, I'm not saying you have to be a total geek, but do you, do you believe it's something that we should learn to do like typing or is it just sort of, you know, hire the right person? I, I mean, I think it's a combination of the two. I think you should hire the right person who really understands the, the background and the technicalities around it. But I, I, you know, again, I mentioned earlier about, you know, you asked me what was my mindset. My mindset is a learner mentality. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even as an executive, um, you know, the level I, I eventually finished in Nissan was was, was a sort of, um, se- you know, middle to senior executive level. That learner mentality stayed with me. And I also taught it to my teams and made sure that they understood that as well. So anyone that worked for me was made to learn how to do things. Uh, some of that was coding. Some of that was basically just how to do online analytics properly rather than just get the agency to do it and I think um, anybody should have that learner mindset and should learn enough to be dangerous but not enough to be an expert. All right let's talk about specifically the social media as it happened at Nissan and and tell us I mean because it's really it's a it's a crowded field out there nowadays whether it's Renault, Peugeot, or Ford, or General Motors, Scott Monty, and all that. <laughs> how? Monty. Yeah, right. Heard of him for a while. That's right, but that's the Ford days. Um, how did you craft? What strategies do you feel that you employed were successful at Nissan? And and uh, what kind of advice would you give to people who are trying to fight that fight now? Well, it was really interesting because I mean, as you know, Minton, in those days, social media was quite nascent. Um, everyone was trying to get to grips with it. I mean, I did a big immersion piece for myself. Was I went to many, many conferences, listened to lots of people, understood what they were doing, um, but then applied my common sense to that to say, well, okay, what do I think would work within Nissan? Um, I mean, you know, the first 12 months of me building social media in Nissan was me with a PowerPoint deck going around many, many executives, basically selling the idea of this is what we want to do and this is why we want to do it. Evangelizing. Evangelizing um, the concept of moving into this sphere so that we could we could build something that would ultimately support the Nissan mission. 
Um, I, you know, I spent 12 months with a PowerPoint deck basically asking for the money. I, I mean, but what I did was, you'll remember this, you know, and it's still a question today, which always flabbergasts me, but, you know, who owns social was the big point of the time. And was it marketing or was it PR or was it even customer service? And, you know, my point of view was, well, it depends on what type of company you are and where the money is effectively. Um, so, you know, one of the key things I did was build a sense of excellence idea rather than sitting inside any one department. Mm-hmm. And I think that was that led to the success. Mm-hmm. Um, it also led ultimately not to the failure, but to a change in mindset for social for Nissan as it moved more into the marketing sphere and less into the center of excellence sphere, mm-hmm. um, which was a money thing. And I think eventually money is is not the root of all evil but sometimes the solver of all problems and if you want to move forward in social media today as we know you need money you need, you need promotional money there's no doubt about that i mean nothing's for free today but what about the role of the the big boss and uh let's say that how much was he or she um useful helpful and a model for helping to drive the you know let's get into social yeah, you, you need a champion. I mean, that's that's for sure. Um, I was very lucky in so much as that my boss at the time, my vice president, was um, he didn't understand this, but he knew it was important and he championed it. So while I did the the sort of grunt work with the the slides and the deck and the money and trying to pull it all together and coming up with the ideas, he was the guy in the boardroom that was basically saying, "This is what we need to do. This is why we need to do it." And even though he didn't understand it, he was able to articulate it correctly to a board level so they understood that it was something important i think having a champion at the right level is something you will always need and i think that was a key learning with having that champion and if you're still trying to build something be it social or whatever within your organization and it could be branding as an example um, you need to have that champion at the right level who will support you to get your goals done all right so in, in pushback mode dave um how is it possible to be a good champion if you're not actually being social yourself? Well, I mean, again, I was quite lucky in that my, my good champion was a, a PR professional of, of old. So he knew how to, to articulate what needed to be done without being an expert in it himself. But I mean, I agree, and I think it gets back to that learner mentality. I mean, effectively, I spent some time mentoring my champion so that he understood the elements that he needed to understand to sell those elements into the board. And I think maybe that, that could be the solution to, to some of those issues, which is you, sometimes you're never going to make them an expert in you know, uh, ad formats on Facebook, but you can give them enough information so that they can sell it to the board. And I think you know, some reverse mentoring back to your champion would probably help in that, in that matter. Do you think that, if you, I mean, let's say now that you're out of Nissan, um, do you encourage your customers that with whom you're working to be on social at the executive level or, or do, you, do you still say that that would be something that does, they don't need to be getting involved with? So my, my view is if it's, if it's genuine and it makes sense, they should be there. And I think um, you know, this, this, sort of, this always harks back to the Richard Branson type examples or even better as the Elon Musk type example. I mean, he is on social and genuinely on social. And you know it's him. And I think, you know, um, I think it was Loke Demur, was it, recently? The, the Tesla customer who tweeted to him and within seven days there was a solution for the issue of charging Teslas uh, and parking your car at the same time. Well, it, it helps that Loic has a, a large following too. Yeah, it did, it, did, it did help. But actually, I, I mean, 
looking at how he responds back to customers, I think the following is probably not his his overall um, his overall thought when responding. I think he he genuinely gets involved, and I think if it's genuine, then yes. If you're trying to force an executive who is maybe 59 years old and trying to get them to tweet, and they don't know how to do it, and they're not going to do it, and then so you then start getting into the realms of well, somebody manages it for them, which I think. Richard Branson's is semi-managed as an example um, I think that's not as genuine and it comes through very quickly to the audience All right, Well, so again in pushback mode if it's not genuine on social can it be genuine outside well I mean I don't, what you right, so what I mean by that is if I if, if you can't be genuine in, in writing a tweet then can you does that not reflect a lack of genuineness as you speak, so I mean, I mean, maybe, maybe not. I think the the genuineness in writing a tweet is probably understanding the annoyances of the platform, uh, as as many people have found out to their disbenefit when writing a tweet off the cuff. I mean, obviously, right. being a little bit too genuine, perhaps. Well, I mean, Mr. Trump plays this game very, very well, well doesn't yeah. he? So he's genuine. He's very genuine, and um, you know, to the percentage of the population that he appeals to, he's he's um, mm. you know that very that's very appealing to them. To the rest, it is absolute blasphemy. So I think um, you know there is there is a limit to the genuine nature of that. I think um, you know my view is is a lot of people probably don't understand the annoyances of the platform, and therefore they can be genuine in it, but not genuine to themselves. Well, that's the thing. So I I so, you know I'm, I'm going to be uh, doing a session on uh, French elections uh, this oh, okay. Sunday on television. And what I've done is I've looked at their 11 candidates, and, and one of the things that really struck me was that two of the top four candidates, Mélenchon, who's a sort of a Trotskyist, and Le Pen, the far right, have the strongest genuine attraction. That's to say the, the content of their messages online resonates the most with their audience. So they are, by being not pleasing to everybody, super pleasing to the people that follow them and let's say that Trump does the same kind of thing it's blasphemy for others but it really resonates for the people who follow at a certain level my my learning from that is not to be like Mélenchon, Le Pen or or Trump but is to say be who you are 100% and you may not please everybody but those who you do please will please you a lot more yeah, I mean, it's it's back to the old adage: if you can't please all the people all the time, isn't it? I yeah. mean, I mean, there is, I mean, some elements to that, but I would imagine, you know, appealing to the people who are already going to vote to you in a very appealing way is probably not going to do much for your Con- cause. Yeah, converting the converted. It's not going, you know, converting the converted is very easy. It, it, you know, if you're trying to win an election, you actually, and certainly in Le Pen's case, she needs to convert the unconverted or yeah. the or the waverers. Uh, you know, and I, we used to call this over, you know, sort of. Um, you know, reaching out through over the wall through the passion, passionate people, and we we had this with motorsports within mm-hmm. Nissan. Now, if you want to do Le Mans or you want to do something with a GTR or a 370Z or a 350Z, that really appeals to motorsports fans, not so much to non-motorsports fans. So we, you know, we were always looking at well, how do we appeal? How do we get this to appeal to the non-motorsports fans? How do we get over the wall to those people through this messaging? And I think it's probably the exact same there, which is how do you get over the wall to the people who are not your converted, who are not the fans, the super fans, mm-hmm. and, and try and resonate to them. But again, the, the trick is to do that without getting in the way of your current fans, who you know, you know, you don't. They, they are your f- numero one. So, I mean, let's get back to the Nissan just one second before we move into digital. 
My father, as you know, worked in the automobile industry for 30 years, Ford and Peugeot, and then a new and Nissan. How does one craft a, uh, an authentic, genuine message, you know, and, and, and meaningful to your core group that also maybe goes through the wall, over the wall? But how does one go about doing that? Well, I, I, my own view is um, it's about being genuine to your past while looking to the future. And I think the French brands are actually very good at this, and, and Ford probably as well. I mean, they're very genuine to their authentic U.S. roots while looking forward to the future of Ford and where that is. And I think, um, and again, the French brands do this. I think the, the Japanese brands don't do it so well because uh, in some cases they don't like to talk enough about their heritage or about their past and they talk too much about the future you know and about other emotions and i think you know if you look at nissan toyota honda they they take a very similar approach they talk about the future all the time and they don't so much dwell on their past and their you know their history and what made them who they are and i think that's that's where i think other brands french brands us brands specifically they really focus on their core and where they, how they got to where they are as well as the future and i think then it becomes around telling the stories around that so you know don't focus too much on your heritage but don't dis- discount it and discredit it and use that to tell the stories for the future i think that's the successful angle that i would like to that i try to bring to some of the stories we try to look at the the past and bring that into the the social content that we did um there was sometimes reticence to do that because people just wanted to look to the future all of the time and they wanted to be forward thinking and you know and not understand both the heritage and the stories and how we could use that to tell the path for the future and not just ignore it. I really like that, Dave, the idea of uh, having a, a foot in your past and a foot in the future to craft your social strategy. All right, so then that brings up the question, maybe for Brave and Hard as well. Is this something that you can delegate to an agency, or should this be something that is generated, driven, and produced internally? It's got to be internal. I think you can, you, can do, you can ask an agency to do some of the heavy lifting for you, uh, to pull together the pieces and to, get, you know, to, to do, spin the plates for you, but it's got to come from inside. You can't, you can't create your brand. You know, the same way as Brave and Heart is, is the brand of me and my co-founder, and, and effectively Brave and Heart. I mean, I, I am brave and he is heart. I mean, not namesake-wise, but in our, the way that we approach things. And I think that that brand name comes from our inside and that's where it came from originally and I think that has to be the same for any brand that you've got and I think that you know any brand is a culmination of its employees and the people that make it up and it's its history and it's past its present it's the future and all of that has to come from inside you can't you know, a lot of people try to do that they try and get an agency in to come and build us a brand you know mm-hmm. you can't do that it's it's never genuine and never lasts because six months 12 months 18 months on the the actual brand will take over and then you've got a juxtaposition between the two things where you've got the actual brand that's then fighting against this new shiny brand that's been put in place. I, I don't feel personally that's the way forward. All right, well, so I want to talk about Bravenheart in a second, but what's the future for agencies? I mean, let's say if I'm an agency and my big bucks was getting the ability to change a brand and, a, and be at the heart of that conversation... If I'm just doing the heavy lifting, which is posting 16 Facebook messages a week or whatever, which is, quote-unquote, the heavy lifting, that's a lower-margin business. What's the uh, future for agencies? 
Well, I mean, this, this is actually a very pertinent question at this point in time, which is what is the future for agencies? And actually, I read a very interesting article by uh, Mr. Ritson last night where he talked about the difference between um, a, a single brand agency, which is what Ogilvy and Mather is trying to move back towards, even though it's sat underneath WPP, versus the publicist group, which is a collation, you know, a brand of houses or a house of brands. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a, it's a, what is it? What do you put it as a house of brands versus a brand of houses or something like this. But, you know, the, the agencies are struggling at the moment as to what is their position, and that's why you have this juxtaposition between are we everything for everybody and are we one-stop shop for everyone, um, or do we, you know, use lots of different agencies to try and support what we're trying to do? I think it's a big question. It's one of the key reasons why Bravenheart is not an agency, um, because we didn't feel that was a space that we wanted to compete in. We felt that the consultancy space or the partnership space is, again, we have a struggle. Are we consultants or partners? And we like to think we're both. But if I tell people I'm a partner, they don't really get it. If I tell people we're consultants, they go, oh, yeah, we get that now. So I have to use the vernacular of the, of the industry to some uh, degree to, to sell ourselves. But, you know, we want to try and forge partnerships with brands and agencies to help them into that future state and whatever that might be. Well, I mean, at the heart of the notion or the difference between consultants and partnership is trust. Agreed. And I think this is why, you know, we prefer to be partners where we partner with people and say, well, we're the guys that will uh, be independent, we will have bravery, we will have heart to the solution, we will bring to your business what you need. We're not here to produce 200-slide PowerPoints and 300-word documents and you know, uh, you know, swallow you in 30 consultants who are going to come in and interview you to death. We're here to work hand-in-hand hand with you into whatever it needs to be done. And some of those decisions might be difficult but that's what we're going to do together. And that's why we try and look at it as a partnership rather than a a consultancy. Right. I mean, if I, I mean, obviously I haven't seen your work, but let's take Brave and Heart. I mean, these sound, from my perspective, absolutely wonderful attributions to any new type of campaign that's going to break through. It's going to show you're courageous. It's going to show a point of difference. But so many companies are conservative. And so, well, we've never done that. How are we going to prove it's going to be successful? Who's going to wave that flag and, and take the, the hit if it fails? Because being brave and at the front but getting killed is not necessarily a good thing. Yeah, I mean, again, it's, it's about finding that advocate inside wherever you're trying to work that, that has that, that feeling themselves of wanting to do something different. And, you know, we are working with a client at the minute, and, and I spoke to them yesterday, and we had a, um, a long interview process, and they were basically saying... We, we know we need to have more bravery and have more heart. We know we need to be more aggressive in our approach. Help us get there because we don't know how to do it. We, What's the process? How, do you, how on earth do you get... I mean, because I mean, at the end of the day, so many of these companies actually do have glorious, illustrious pasts. A founder who, through, against all odds, made it through from the garage to a trade, publicly traded and so on. And that is a glorious and brave past. But then, little by little, sands of time stock market performance the new ceo it all gets watered down and they're all the same yeah and this again this is exactly the conversation i was having yesterday with our clients and you know the, you know this client has a hundred years of family history in their business and you know what we're trying to persuade them is that that's what they need to get into they're, they're basically saying who are we 
uh, you know, and, and I've said, look, every time I've walked through your doors, you are a family company and your employees are your family. That's who you are. Let's build on that. And so, that, you know, we're trying to help them build stories and a, an ethos moving forward in social and digital, which will effectively permeate into their brand, which they already have. and They have a really good brand proposition, but they need to find a better way of articulating that through all of the channels available to them. Um, and those channels could be, uh, you know, it could be TV, it could be video, it could be uh, print, it could be out of home. It doesn't really matter if we get the story of the brand right at the heart. You mentioned the word personal and uh, something that resonates for me. I was reading uh, some of these recent pundits talking about Bezos's recent letter to the shareholders. I don't know if you read it, about the I instead of the we. And, and, and ultimately... And I love the Bezos Right, you love. Yeah, I love the Bezos approach. I think it's really, really, um, you know, you know, he has some approaches which I have tried to build into some of our forward thinking for Brave and Heart. Which is, you know, my favourite one is, um, you know, never have a team bigger, bigger that can share a pizza. Uh, you know, and, and effectively, he's he's basically having the ethos of small, agile teams work better than large teams generally. Um, and you know, being ex-military, it's the way the SAS used to work. The SAS work in four-man teams, and because it's the most agile way of getting into the the front lines and doing the job that needs to be done. Bezos did something similar with the way he manages the teams, and there is sort of um, you know a beauty in the chaos of Amazon of how it works. And I, I, I think that is a good ethos moving forward. And that's a similar ethos to what we want to do when we start looking at Brave and Heart and as we start to scale up. Um, we want to look at building small, agile teams of people that can do that. And that's so the Bezos approach. I, I, I'm a big fan, so to speak. All right, I, and yet, when we look at the big businesses that you and I both know, publicly traded, the founder is no longer present. The, the balls that go with the founder's instinct, the founder's large ownership and responsibility which of their own shareholding goes and then the the courage that and the personality that comes with that sort of stake in the ground that ability to express themselves to be bold goes away so when you're dealing with a ceo who says hey dave i, I want you to make us brave and heart but the guy in front of you is is some meek i mean or or maybe not to be mean but just a commercial ceo who came into the company 18 months ago because they were he was hired because he's very intelligent and he's got great performance track record uh, how do you deal with that? Well I, I mean again I, I'll always come back to the same thing which is the, the, the brand story and I think you have to show that CEO that um, you know whereas he quite rightly is focusing on future profits for the company you have to show him that the path to those future profits of the company is by the company being true and genuine to itself and so if, if there is has been some veering away from that that true north of the company um, to pick up on the vernacular we spoke about earlier but if, if they've moved away from the true north of that company and you know done too much or diversified too much or they, they're all over the place it's about helping them refine that true north for their brand uh, and a lot of that will sit in their history in the past and where they've come from I want to just one last question, Dave, before we close up, which is the difference between social and digital. You had these two jobs, head of social and head of digital. How is that different? Or at least what, can you, what kind of uh, texture can you add to, the, to why head of digital or why head of social? Yeah, I mean, I mean, head of social was effectively um, because at that time social was a new emerging area. They didn't know what to do with it, so I became the head of social because they needed someone to manage it. Um, I mean, ultimately, the the job is is not head of social at all. It's the head of 
telling stories of the company through um, new channels, which may or may not be social, and I, you know, but that's not quite as catchy as a, as a title, is it? Um, but I mean, the, 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 what I was able to bring to social and digital by knowing both areas of my background um, was the rigor of measurement. Um, and you know, certainly within my last role, one of the key things I did across the, the regions I was working on, which is Africa, Middle East, India, was bring a rigor of measuring and performance optimization based on your measuring to the whole area of social and digital. So, I mean, the, you know, the key thing we did was set up five KPIs, and those five KPIs were f- purely focused on digital and social performance. Um, now, we had lots of other PIs underneath those KPIs to help manage that, but effectively, six KPIs, that's all we had, or uh, five, I think I said. Um, I finished off with six, but we start with five. Um, five KPIs, that's all we had, and, that, and that's all we're going to focus on. And I think the rigor that I brought was, well, let's measure and monitor those on a, on a regular basis, and that could be campaign-based or monthly basis, and make sure the stories we are telling are resonating in the right way. If not, then maybe we're not telling them in the right way, and let's try again. I know it gets back to the fail fast, but measure work out where you failed, improve, and then move on. And so just a, a clarification, when we talk about digital, what was digital for you? So digital for me in my region was, was um, you know, it was the websites. Let's say that's the traditional digital per se. Um, but I also picked up CRM, um, customer databases, um, dealer systems, dealer management, um, anything. I mean, you know, my job or I felt my job was, and that's the work, what I took in hand was, if it's digital, in any shape or form, I touch it. Well, so uh, augmented reality in the showroom floor? If that's what it took. Although I, I, I don't believe in augmented reality in the showroom floor any more than I believe in VR in the showroom floor. Um, but effectively, if that's what it took, yes. I mean, we, I would support on that. And, you know, I, I, I've always set myself up within Nissan as an agency within a company and that's the feeling I've always given my teams so um, we've always set ourselves up as centers of excellence and so my job was exactly the same as head of digital our job was to advise guide cajole um, and move people in the right direction and if, if that was to convince them that AR in a showroom was a good or a bad idea then that's what we would help do well, I love the idea of having agency so Dave how can someone find your podcast uh, or follow you track you down what are the best ways well, me personally, I mean, I, I have a small um, podcast that I do, a geeky podcast called uh, Geordie Geek. It's available on iTunes. Um, I host it through Libsyn, so it's on various other uh, outlets as well, SoundCloud and, and various other areas. And that's just me talking about lots of geeky, fun stuff because I'm, I'm a secret geek. Including your last trip to South by Southwest, I saw. Yeah, including my last trip to South by Southwest. I, I often throw in the odd sneaker review just to throw people off track. Um, I have a YouTube channel which does the same, which uh, um, does sneakers. Um, but also um, Brave and Heart is... Um, you know our company um, myself and rich rust are the co-founders uh, you can find us on twitter at brave and heart uh, we will be starting our own podcast very similar to yours Minter, where we're going to be interviewing top marketers uh, we're going to call it the something along the lines of the marketing electric chair uh, and basically ask people um, you know, some good interesting questions that um, puts them a bit on the hot seat uh, and tries to shed some light on the industry brilliant well dave thanks very much for being on the show great to have you on look forward to staying in touch and, and finding out how we can render more brands with more uh, more bravure and, uh, and more heart. Thank you very much, Minter. Thank you, everyone, uh, who listened into this podcast. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes on themindset.com. That's mindset with a Y. 
where you can also sign up for my weekly newsletter at forward slash subscribe. If you like the show, please do rate it in iTunes. That really makes my day. Happy trails and enjoy Josh Sachs's Painted Fingers. Oh, fill me with all your colors any different way to rid me of the gray and heal me with all your imperfections that you mention in your lack of Sarah, and I want to tell you about my podcast called Can I Offer You Some Feedback? I'm a business consultant and executive coach with over 20 years experience in change management, leadership development, and naturally providing feedback to high performers. My podcast is for those of you who have a complicated relationship with feedback, whether giving, receiving, 
avoiding, or seeking, feedback is essential for our development. In each episode, you'll hear from real people across industries with their ideas, perspectives, and best practices on feedback. I'll also be sharing business bites with you, simple explanations of organizational tools, management techniques, and leadership philosophies that will help you and your businesses thrive. You can listen to Can I Offer You Some Feedback on your favorite podcast app or learn more at evergreenpodcasts.com.